that you would give us not only the ability to speak by giving us utterance, but that you would give us discernment that we would understand the truth found in your law. I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see these things that are wondrous before us. God, I pray that as your word is proclaimed, that it would move in all of our hearts. God, I pray that there would be clear application and a way to live out your word. God, I pray that you would help us as we endeavor to follow your will for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, setting sail from Troas, where we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside in the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I want to look back at our map of Paul's journey just to make sure that this is fresh in everybody's mind, where Paul has gone. You see the turns when you look at this in the back of your Bible. Oftentimes, the commentators make a straight line from that southern area where Galatia is up to Mycenae. But in reading the passage that we looked at last week, we know it wasn't a straight line. It was somewhat of a curve because Paul tried heading south and he was stopped. And then he tried heading north, and then he was stopped, and he was redirected. But when Paul eventually found himself in God's will, not that he was living in disobedience to God, but he was certainly relying on his own strengths, wasn't he? It reminds me of Samson in many ways. When he relied on God's direction in his life, they made a direct path. I love that verse 11 starts with that. They Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. There was no obstacle. There was no S-curve in their line. They sailed directly into what would become modern-day Europe. And this journey is truly remarkable because Paul had no intention of taking the gospel to Europe. We marvel at the way that God directs him, and there are some amazing observations that we can make from this. There are observations ripe for the picking that the Spirit, first of all, directs the people of God. That the Spirit's planning brought the gospel to a new continent. Thanks to that, being brought to this new continent, this new frontier, the gospel would be spread further around the world than it had ever been spread before. Through Christianity, the gospel would even be able to I'm sorry, through the, through the Spirit's direction, the gospel being brought into Europe also permitted Christianity to spread into Asia and the further corners of the world. Well, how so? 
Let's zoom into our map for a second. Focusing in on this area that Paul arrives at, what we find, first of all, we know he's arrived at Philippi in our text, but before he got there, he had to pass through Neapolis, and eventually we're going to get down to Thessalonica. I mean, that's where we're heading. I said we're studying 1 Thessalonians, right? Along this path was a trade route established by Rome called the Ignatius Way. This path made its way all the way uh, to the, if you looked on a map where, I always want to call it Constantinople, but it's Istanbul. And some a Turk is going to get mad at me someday for calling it Constantinople. Here's what you need to know about Constantinople or Istanbul. It is perhaps one of the most valuable geographic locations ever in the history of the world. It has been fought over more than any other territory ever before. Why? Because it's the Panama Canal before the Panama Canal existed. It is the trade route from the Mediterranean Sea into Central Europe. It is a valuable valuable place of real estate. And, and that's why the Turk call it Istanbul instead of Constantinople. Constantine call it Constantinople because he conquered it. But you guys aren't history nerds, so you don't care all about that. What you do need to know is that this Ignatius Way passed all the way through to this infamous place of real estate. And through that, not only were things traded, but ideas were traded. Faith was traded. People began to negotiate what they believed and why they believed it. And through contending with one another, the Spirit of the Lord was able to act in people that had never heard the gospel before. Through Paul's small act of faithfulness in heading over to Europe, the gospel spreads into Asia. Bithania, the region that he wasn't able to go to, the gospel got there. We know that it got there. Our takeaway is that God's plan is always better than our plan. Paul didn't want anything that was ennoble or immoral because he wanted to go preach the gospel in Bithynia. That was a noble calling. But that wasn't God's plan. Sometimes we have noble callings, things that can't be refuted in Scripture. But the question we should ask ourselves is, is it God's plan? God's plan is always better than our plan. You know, we might like to look back at history and think that there are people that were able to come up with schemes or plans that were so strategic that we marvel at it. Can I tell you something that I've noticed as I've looked at history? There aren't a lot of brilliant men in the world. I think most of the greatest strategies that we've ever seen unfold have really just been a consequence of happenstance. A lot of times it's just about being in the right place at the right time. Inevitably, an honest student of history will tell us that the most brilliant strategies ever executed are best explained in retrospect. When we are following God's will, it is more important that we are faithful to what God would have us do than what we would like to do. Let me add to that. It's more important that we are faithful to do what we know God wants for us than that we understand the entire plan. You might not know where God is taking you with the next step, the next burden He's laid on your heart. Neither did Paul. And that's okay. As Paul and his missionary uh, journeymen made their way into Philippi. 
Dr. Luke comments that Philippi was a leading city of the district. It was a leading city. That might lead us to think that Philippi was, um, that Philippi was in some way uh, the capital city or something like that, but history tells us that that is not true. Instead, Paul means something else when he calls Philippi a leading city. One of the things that he means is that Philippi was very influential in the region. See, Philippi wasn't the, uh, the chief city. The King James uses the word chief. Uh, ESV says leading city. The Greek word's actually proto, which just means the same word prototype. It's the first word. It's an example of. Philippi was an example to that region of the world. Why? It was an example because it was placed by the Roman Empire that the people in that area would get a sense of all of the good things that could come if they would simply allow themselves to, to be a Roman colony. It was the only official Roman colony in that area, which means it was the only place where people born in that city were natural-born Roman citizens. They had rights according to the Roman Empire. It was an example for the people to look at so that they could say, if I would simply do things the Roman way, my life would be better. And there were some consequences that came along with this. When we look at Rome, or when we look at Philippi, the day that Paul arrived, not only was it an example of the potential of Roman culture, it was exceptionally anti-Jewish. There wasn't a lot of faith here. After all, Rome didn't want people putting their faith in gods or in ideas. Rome wanted people to put their faith in Caesar. If we look in our text, we find that after staying there many days, verse 13 says that Paul, Luke, Timothy, Silas had to make their way outside of the city gate to the riverside where they supposed there was a place of prayer. Why do you think they had to go to a riverside to find a place of prayer? According to Jewish custom, in order to establish a synagogue, there had to be at least ten men, ten heads of households. Whenever there weren't enough Jews in a particular location to establish a synagogue, instead the people would gather by the riverside for prayer. We get the sense then from our text that when these four men arrived in Philippi, they set out looking for a synagogue where Paul could begin to preach the gospel. They didn't find one, and so instead they waited until the next Sabbath and they went outside of the city so that they could meet with people of faith and Paul could begin to preach the gospel because this was his custom. He first preached to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. It's an anti-Jewish region. I don't know about you, but I think oftentimes we have a tendency to say, well, there's not enough going on here. I'm not sure that I want to be a part of it. I mean, I think about church visitors, for example. They say, well, this church is too small. The children's ministry isn't big enough. I'm not sure that uh, there's enough people for me to get along with. Some of us admire those things, and some of us have to repent of wanting things to stay that way at the sacrifice of those that would be drawn closer. But when Paul came to Philippi and he didn't find a synagogue, 
to preach the word in. He didn't find an audience large enough for him to begin his ministry. He didn't despise it. Did you know that God usually uses small things to accomplish his work? Just this past Friday, we saw how one small snowflake could begin to accumulate on the ground in such a way that it could blanket our entire region. My kids were able to make a snowman, two snowmen, in fact. They weren't pretty because I didn't rake my yard before it snowed, so they were covered with leaves. But there were snowmen. We wake up early in the morning and we watch the sun come up, and it's a small glint of light. It doesn't illuminate everything before us. But what happens by noon? That sun rises in the sky, and it is able to illuminate the entire world around us. The warmth of it was able to melt the snow that we saw Friday. Small seed is capable of growing into a flower. A tiny acorn grows into a mighty oak tree. Even a small stream flowing in our backyards eventually makes its ways to large rivers so big that they have the capability to reshape landscapes as we make our way to the Grand Canyon and marvel at what God is able to do. God uses small things to work out His will. He uses small people, small instruments, small means. God is able to do so much with a small act of faithfulness. As Paul and the missionaries began to preach, they didn't have a large crowd. They found a small group of women gathered by this small riverbank. As they were meeting for prayer, they would have had a warm reception, especially Paul being a trained Pharisee and having all of the, being from Jerusalem. He would have been, they would have paid so much attention to him, but only one of these women is noted of actually hearing. The Bible says that as they came together, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. It's there by this riverside that Paul is able to do so much. When we talk about evangelism and the need that, well, the ordinance, the command, however you want to place it, that all Christians have to be a part of sharing their faith and testifying and sharing all of the good things that God has done for them with everyone that they come in contact with. We often overcomplicate it. The Bible doesn't record what Paul said. It doesn't record his speech. It doesn't record the message that he delivered to them. It says that he went to a small group of women and that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia that she might hear what God had to say. Aren't we guilty of overcomplicating what it means to share our faith? How many people say, I don't know how to do evangelism because I'm worried I'll say something wrong. How long have you been in church? How long have you read your Bible? How long have you walked with God? And you're telling me you don't know how to explain the gospel? Loved ones, it's not a complicated business. We're guilty of making things more complicated than we really should. Our world's really not as complicated as we make it out to be. Do you realize there's only seven colors in the rainbow? Look at what Michelangelo was able to do with those seven colors. 
You realize there's only seven musical notes? Look at what Beethoven was able to do with those seven musical notes. Do you realize there's only ten numbers? Look what Bernie Madoff was able to do with those ten numbers. <laughs> Life really isn't as complicated as we make it out to be. Our job is not to save people. Our job in evangelism is not to save people. It's to preach the gospel that exists. I want to draw your attention that in verse 14, when the Bible begins to discuss Lydia's conversion, it does not say that Paul convinced her of the truth. It says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. God is the one that does the work. God is the one that opens hearts. He is the one that plants small seeds. He is the one that rises, raises the sun. He's the one that begins the river. He is the one that begins in the small works. And He begins in the lives of people. I wish I could eloquently put in order how people come to salvation. But what I know from experience, what I know from observation is this. It often doesn't happen all at once. It often starts as small inclinations. It starts by hearing the truth and feeling the truth and knowing that it's real. And sometimes people don't respond to that. And so they live with a sense of guilt, a sense of knowing that they should come closer to God, that they should draw near to Him. But they put expectations on themselves that don't exist. They despise the small things that have started inside of them. And instead, they run away from these things because they're worried it might be a fleeting moment. Well, I've tried to be a good person before. I've tried to quit uh, abusing drugs before. Well, I've tried to uh, love my wife better before. I've tried all of these things and eventually I get tired of it and I become the same person. People don't change. The message of the gospel is that people do change. They don't change by their own means. They don't change by their own might. They change through the power of Jesus Christ living in their heart. And through the power of transformation, people do turn away from drugs. They do love their wives more. They're able to walk with God in such a tangible way that He can do all things in and through them. But it's not by being convinced by a preacher. It's not by being scolded by a parent. It's not by being told by a friend that there is a truth. It's by God opening their heart to the truth and receiving it. And in living in such a sense, when we decide not to despise the small things inside of us, when we commit to nurturing them and loving them and praying that God would make sure that these aren't fleeting inclinations or birds inside of us, that they mature, that seeds sprout, that dawns turn into noon. These small things are able to work in us and they're able to work in all of God's glory. Paul and his friends, when they arrived in Philippi, even though they did not find a synagogue to preach in, they did not despise the small things. They went and they trusted that God had brought them to this region for a particular purpose. You are not here this morning by mistake. It is not an accident. And believe it or not, it wasn't even because you took the initiative to wake up this morning. God decided before the world was ever formed, that you would be sitting in this place on this day at this hour hearing this message. He knows that you are here. He has intended for you to be here. There are no accidents. 
God prepared Lydia as much as he prepared Paul to preach the gospel. What we know of Lydia is that she was from this city called Thyatira. I prefer to call it Thyatria, but Brother James likes Thyatira. Most likely she was a Gentile. She wasn't born a Jew. Thyatira was not a Jewish outpost by any means. It was Roman by all means, which means that most likely, I'm reading into the text a little bit, but most scholars agree with me, so I feel safe saying this. Most likely she was a Gentile that heard news of this one true living God, and she became what the Jews would call a God-fearer. Being a woman of trade, she found herself in Philippi, and she, she sold purple goods. God prepared her to hear Paul's message. He had worked in her life before she ever came to Philippi to make her a God-fearer, to make her aware of this truth, to make her a seeker of truth, to make her interested in what would come, so that when she heard Paul's word preached, the Lord opened her heart. And she was able to understand these things and put them together and know that this was the truth, that it wasn't some made-up babbling of a lunatic, but that this was what everything in the Old Testament had pointed to from the beginning of time, that God had planned that Jesus Christ would die on behalf of sinners, not just the chosen nation of Israel, but all people, and that He had intended to do this so that we could have a restored relationship with Him. Hearing this word, Lydia was baptized. Does that, what does that tell us? That tells us that even though Lydia became a God-fearer and was faithful to visit the small congregation that wasn't even officially established in Philippi, she was not truly a Christian all the years and days that she gathered at the riverside. I fear one of the ways that we despise small things is in forgetting the work that God started in us. For many generations, what makes this so difficult is they had the tremendous and unimaginable blessing of being born into Christian families and Christian households. They were raised with morality baked into every decision that their family made. They don't know what it means to come from the heathen world. For others, it's simply a matter of time. They've walked this way in the Christian pilgrimage for so long that they don't remember what God was able to save them from. And so these professing Christians, those who say that they were called by God, look down on those that are beginning in the faith. They look at them and they despise them. They despise the small work that God has started in them. Oh, there are even those that have been in church for so long that they think they're saved, but they're not saved. And we say they're not saved because they don't resemble a person who's been saved. They have temperaments that don't reflect that they've been saved. They're disagreeable, easily offended. They're bitter. They don't seek reconciliation. I've known tons of people who call them 
Christians, call themselves Christians, with this list of attributes. But those who are more mature despise that those Christians continue to come and sully the testimony of the church. Shame on the church. I do not mind that false professing Christians draw near to hear the gospel. I do not mind that they come to hear what God can do in their lives. I do not mind that they do not reflect everything that it means to be a Christian. I do not mind that they do not commit themselves to the Lord in everything. In fact, I try to be even more gracious towards these people. Do you want to know why? These people... Caught between two worlds, have silly whims and silly ideas, and they'll get offended at nothing at all. They're the easiest people to offend. But do you know what I know about my Lord? I was once like them. Those who have received God's grace in their life should be capable of showing a little grace to others. If we're not capable of that, how can we say we've ever received God's grace? 1 John 2.3 By this we know that we have come to know Him, that we keep His commandments. Does He not command us to love one another? Does He not command us to show grace towards one another? Does He not command us to show love and affection towards the brothers? We do not have the ability to discern who God is working in and who is fake. What we do have the ability to do is to be faithful in the small things. Preaching a simple message. Being committed to a simple message. And trusting that God will do the work through all of this. I do not despise those preparatory works of God that are present in immature Christians and those who have not yet come to know their Savior. We should be all the more grace-filled when dealing with them. When our mission field is reached. Think about this, church. When our mission field is reached, when Greenwood is reached, when we take our message into the neighborhoods that we live in and we visit our friends and those people that do not know the Lord, are we faithful to share the message? If we were, are you ready for them to come to church? I think oftentimes we want to see God work in big ways and we pray for amazing things to come from Him. We know that the message isn't very complicated, Are you ready for them to come? Are you ready to minister to them, to disciple them? I was studying, I think it was a couple weeks ago, and I was asking, I was praying specifically that God would increase the Bible study that's taking place at Michelle and I's home. And I was struck with the realization that since January 1st has rolled around, I've not gotten out of bed before 8 o'clock. I wonder if physically I'm ready for ministry to grow. Do I have the energy, the stamina? Do I have the spiritual strength? to endure the hardship of ministry. From God's work in Lydia's life, her conversion had a tremendous impact. 
Look at this. Lydia repented and was baptized. She didn't despise the small work of God in her life. She trusted, put her faith, and was baptized as a sign of identifying with Christ. But it wasn't just Lydia. It was also her entire neighbor or her entire household, those people that lived with her, those servants that cared for her, those people who were employed by her. They put their faith in Christ and were baptized. From Lydia's conversion, we see how God is able to work in the small things. One small woman ends up taking the gospel into Thyatira, the city where she is from. I know a church is established there because it's referenced by John in the book of Revelation. Also, a church in Philippi is established, even though Paul is eventually going to be arrested and ran, run out of Philippi. He's not able to continue his ministry so that when he writes to this church, he's able to encourage them in trusting all the things things that God has done. From one small conversion, her household is saved, two churches are planted, and that's only the beginning, friends, because I believe that every church that exists today has been handed down the gospel from the work that Jesus began. How is it possible that God's grace works in some of us differently than others? How is it possible that some people respond to the gospel with immediacy? How is it possible that two people who have been converted at the same time could develop different giftings. Isn't it strange that your pastor's only 30 years old? Don't you like to laugh at that? I like to laugh at that. I pray that you don't despise me for my youth. I pray that you think that my teaching is acceptable that there's a certain degree of profundity in it and that you continue to discover truths found in the Bible that you had not seen before. Why am I where I am at and you are you where you are at? This isn't a put down. It's a testimony to the way that God works in people's lives. And let me tell you something, friends. When we do not nurture the small things that God begins in our lives... God will soon humble us. God can raise up the youngest and the most immature that they might surpass those that have walked in the faith for the longest amounts of time. Do you believe that God is able? I say that not to instigate in you any sense of guilt, but to prompt you to realize that if God is able to do that, imagine what he is able to do in your life. God is able to work in the small things. We should be faithful to God's direction even when we do not know where He is taking us. We should not doubt where God has directed us. We should trust His plan when we arrive. We should be grace-filled even now, asking for more. By all means, begging God that He would fill us with grace and that we would increase in it and walk in it. James wrote, you do not have because you do not ask. Specifically referring to wisdom. 
You do not have wisdom because you do not ask for it, because you do not beg God for it, because you despise that small inclination in your heart that says, God, if I could glorify you with everything that I had, God, if I could simply be faithful in responding, if I could simply go home and be disciplined about this, but God, I've tried before and I've failed. God, I can't do it anymore. You have despised the small thing. But what would happen if we begged? God, increase our knowledge. God, increase the way that we walk. It better our testimony. Protect us from ourselves. Help us to have divine appointments with people that we love. Direct our conversations back to you, Lord. Do not be removed from my thoughts, but help me to think on you every day as I walk. God, help me to be aware of the dashboard of my life. Follow the leading of the Spirit. Rise and come forward. Come to the gospel because it's a simple message and it's not just for those who have never heard it before. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we respond to your word. Help us to consider how you have worked in the past and help us to respond to the way you are working now. Father, I pray that you would give courage to those that are here this morning that need to respond to your word. I pray that you would move in their hearts. Father, I pray that you would comfort the thoughts. Do not let them leave with a sense of guilt, but God, give them the comfort of knowing that you have planted a small seed that needs to be nurtured. Help us to be bound up and comforted by the love of Christ that has already covered the penalty of all our sins who has made us new, who has grafted us in, who has adopted us as sons. Help us, Lord, to walk in this way. Help us to respond together as a church. God, help us to glorify you. Help us to stand and sing, not for the pleasure of people, but for an audience of one. In Jesus' name we pray.